I'd like to welcome you to our class. We're studying how I would approach the defense of Paul as a lawyer if he'd hired me when he'd gotten arrested in Jerusalem around 57 AD and what I would have done. And I, it's, it's interesting how this class goes forth. Uh, I thank all of you for being here, but I thank everybody who runs the internet and the cameras and the sound and, and who posts us online. Friday afternoon, after I'd already written the lesson, so if you've read the lesson, you're thinking, that's not the introduction to the lesson. I'll get to that in a minute. But Friday afternoon, I was uh, giving a deposition. Now, lawyers do not typically give depositions. Lawyers typically take depositions. Deposition is when you're the actual witness. And so there's a camera that's on me, a court reporter, who makes me raise my hand. Do I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to help me God? I said, I do. And then these two lawyers proceed for about three hours to ask me questions. Now, I'm a witness that has knowledge of relevant facts in a lawsuit between one company and another law firm. And and what had happened in the case is, uh, 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 I had represented an oil company that had sued this company B. Company B paid us money, but then thought that their lawyers, or not their lawyers, that was part of the fight, had done a bad job, so they were suing the law firm. And since I had been the lawyer originally in the case, they wanted to know what I had to say. So I sat down, and I knew both of the lawyers taking my deposition. Uh, they're both outstanding lawyers, and and it was uh, fun. I, I made them come to the theological library for me to give the deposition. <laughs> that alone cleaned up the language significantly. Um, and uh, uh, sure enough, the lawyer who starts out my deposition started out by saying, Mark. I've watched you on the internet getting ready for your deposition. I said, okay. He said, and I happen to know how you approach a case. And I said, okay. He said, I know because you're teaching how you would approach a case if you were defending Paul. And I've listened to the five lessons so far. I said, okay. And he said, so I know that you would do this and this and this, wouldn't you? Because he's trying to say that this law firm did not do a good job representing his client. And so he wants to hold them up to the standard that I'm talking about in here. And I went, well, uh, yeah. He said, I'm assuming that's what you would do. And I said, yeah, that's, that's what I do. So I don't know. Uh, but Tony, if you're watching, this class is for you. <clears throat> Last week, I probed this idea of whether or not Paul was a good guy. Because one thing I'm always looking for in my clients, I want good people. I want honest people. I want people with good hearts. I want people who will make a good impression on the judge and jury. A, a, a fundamental rule that I live by in trying cases is jurors give good verdicts to good people. And I will never forget when I was a young lawyer, there was a lawyer in town who was really, really quite accomplished and quite good. His name was Joe Jamail, and he's now dead. 
And Joe had a client one time that was not a nice person and was not a good person. And Joe was trying that case. And that's one of the most difficult cases to try. You want to try cases for people who are good people. And Joe stood up in front of the jury. And one of the first things he said was, I'm Joe Jamal. He's a short little guy. Well, he's a dead guy now. He's probably even shorter. But <laughs> he said, sorry, it happens, you know, when you lose the water. Anyway, he says, I'm Joe Jamal. And I represent John Smith. He's a bad guy. I don't like him. You're not going to like him either. I'm just telling you now. He's on a stand. You're going to listen to him. You're going to say, I don't like that guy. But I'll tell you why I'm here. I'm here because even bad guys are entitled to justice. I thought, pretty honest, pretty gutsy. And he lost. But the... uh, It was still just a really stunning time, and, and, and I learned early on, you want a good guy. So we looked at Paul, because I wanted to know, if Paul really was holding himself accountable for the stoning of Stephen, for persecuting the church, if he really had done all of those bad things, then was he a bad guy? Or once I climb back into his day, his culture, his time period, his faith, can I find that he was actually acting in in a way that's that's positive? And looking at it last week, I, I think absolutely so. He was a zealot for God. He wasn't acting out of bad motives. He was acting out of pure motives and and ones that made it so difficult for him to accept and understand that he was, um, okay, is that, we got to go back. My remote control, there we go. Boy, look at that. We're on the way there. Thank you. So Paul is acting in a way consistent with a good character and a good guy. Which brings me to my next set of things I'd want to analyze. What happened to him? that changed him from being Mr. Paul the persecutor into this saint who's responsible in so many different ways for the spread of the gospel by allowing God to work through him, sharing the good news that Jesus was Messiah, is Messiah. And so I would go back and I would listen to that conversion story that that he gave. But conversion isn't even the right word necessarily. That's what a lot of people call it. But I would go back and listen to his account of what changed his mind and heart when he was on that road to Damascus. And I would ask myself this question. I'd probably write it exactly like this on my legal pad. Is Paul legitimate or is he a lunatic? I mean, something happened and it's either legit or Paul is not so. I can't figure any other option out. So I want to look at the story. 
the story of what happened to Paul is told in the book of Acts in three different places. Now, Acts is a history of the early Christian movement that one of Paul's companions, a doctor, a Jewish doctor named Luke, probably from Antioch, wrote down. And Luke accompanied Paul. He was pretty smart, by the way, if you're a sickly fellow especially, take a doctor with you on your mission trips. But Paul and Luke were comrades, and Luke, in his early history of the Christian movement, writes three different accounts of Paul on the road to Damascus when those life and mind-changing events happened. Acts chapter 9 is the first one, and it's a simple narrative. All Acts chapter 9 does is give us the basic storyline. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but Brent was so fast with announcements this morning. We've got a little bit of time, and so let's make sure that we're on the same page. We won't be reading each account, okay? Paul is still breathing threats. He's still breathing murder against the people who follow Jesus as Messiah. So Paul goes to the high priest. By the way, Paul had access at the highest levels. Paul was a prosecutor, if you will, for the, the, the Jewish rulers, the temple society. Paul goes to the high priest and he says, I'd like some letters to the synagogues at Damascus. Damascus, by the crow flying, if you were taking an airplane, is about 140 miles north of Jerusalem. But if you take the roads, it winds up being closer to 180 or so miles. I want letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So if I find any people in the synagogues who belong to the way, That's what they were calling those Jews who believed in Jesus as the Messiah. Because Isaiah had prophesied in Isaiah chapter 40 that one would come before the Messiah and say, prepare the way of the Lord. And then John the Baptist is who was that one who came and preached, prepare the way of the Lord. Jesus then came and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so the way is an early proclamation of Jesus being Messiah. Jesus is the way that humanity finds peace with God. There is no peace with God absent something taking care of our sins or someone, and that's Jesus. So, Paul says there are Jews at the synagogue who believe Jesus is Messiah, who believe he's the way. I want letters so that I can put them in chains and bring them to Jerusalem to stand trial. Now, As Paul went on his way, he approached Damascus. Now, you'd make about 15 miles a day on a journey like that by foot. 
and donkey. So 15 miles a day, he's getting close to Damascus. Figure it's at least a 10, probably more like a 14-day journey because they're not supposed to walk on Sabbath, on Shabbat. So it takes two weeks. So Paul is at the end of two weeks of pretty hard walking. And he's getting close to Damascus. And suddenly, a light from heaven shines around him. Paul falls to the ground and he hears a voice that speaks to him. And it calls Paul his Hebrew name, Shaul. Shaul meaning to question. And so the voice questions the questioner who's going to interrogate people. You get the layers of puns that are being built into this? Shaul, Shaul, why are you persecuting me? Well, Paul says, uh, who are you? And he said, I'm Yehoshua, Joshua, Greek, Jesus, English of the Greek of the Hebrew, Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now think about that for just a moment. Paul's persecuting people, Jews who believe that Jesus is the way. And Jesus personalizes that and says, Paul, you're persecuting me. When you persecute them, you're persecuting me. Are you not surprised in light of this that Paul, and only Paul in the New Testament, calls the church the body of Christ? Because Christ revealed to him, when you persecute my people, you're persecuting me. Jesus says to him, get up, go into the city, and you're going to be told what to do. Now, the men who were traveling with Paul stood speechless. They heard the voice, but they couldn't see anyone. So Saul rises from the ground, and his eyes are open, but he's blinded. He can't see anything. So he has to be led by the hand. They bring him into Damascus for three days. He can't see anything and he doesn't eat and he doesn't drink. This is a different Damascus experience than Paul expected to have. He was going there, guns a-blazing. He had his letters and he was going to be interrogating, entrapping, and grabbing arresting and hauling back on a two-week journey by foot in chains any Jews who believe that Jesus was the way to God. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. This would have been one of the people Paul would have been trying to find so that Paul could take him back in chains. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, Ananias said, here I am. God said, rise and go to the street 
called straight. By the way, if you go to Damascus, you can still find the street called straight. I would not go right now. <laughs> Get a little more peace over there. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Behold, he's praying. So here's Paul. He's been blinded. The last thing he saw was this bright light and the voice of Jesus telling him, you're persecuting me, get into Damascus and you wait. He's not eating, he's not drinking, he's not seeing, but he's praying. He's trying to figure all of this stuff out. I'm sure it's not lost on him that while he's on a straight street, He's staying in the home of a man named Judas. Not the same Judas, Iscariot, of course, who betrayed Jesus. And Judas was a very, very common Jewish name at the time. But it's not lost on Luke. That's why Luke puts it in here. I mean, why else would we care? House of a guy named Judas. A street called Straight. Luke puts it in there, both as identifiers, if someone wants to go check out his account, but also because it, it, his readers are going to read that and go, yeah, I'm, I'm on this. I see. So Ananias is being told, ask for Saul. Saul's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay hands on him so he can regain his sight. Ananias says, I love this. Uh, God, you may not be up on the news, but let me tell you what's going around on the internet. Uh, I've read on the internet about this guy. How much evil he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name, including yours truly. But the Lord said to him, go, he's a chosen instrument of mine. To carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul had gone to make others suffer for the sake of God. But in fact, it's going to be Paul who does the suffering. So Ananias departed. He entered the house, lays his hands on him. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came, sent me to you so you can regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. He rose, was baptized. He took food and he was strengthened. For some days he stayed with the disciples in Damascus, not finding out who are believers in the way to arrest them, but instead proclaiming Jesus in those synagogues. See, there's been a turn. A corner's been turned. Paul was going to go to the synagogues and ferret out those who believe Jesus is the way and haul them arrested back to Jerusalem. Now, some corner's been turned in a dramatic way because he's going to those synagogues. But it's not to find out people who believe Jesus is Messiah. It's to tell everybody Jesus is Messiah. He is the Son of God. 
all who heard him were amazed. They said, isn't this the guy who made havoc in Jerusalem? Of those who called upon Jesus? And has he, hasn't he come here for this purpose? To bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength. And he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving through Jewish scriptures Jesus was Messiah. So the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They're watching the gates day and night. They're going to kill him when he leaves. So his disciples take him at night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. He comes to Jerusalem. Oh, this is interesting. How's this reception? He comes to Jerusalem. He attempts to join the other disciples, the other followers of Jesus. And they're scared to death of him. They didn't think he was a disciple. They thought he was tricking them to get inside so he could figure out how to get more of them out. Now, that's the story. As I told you, the story is told twice more. It's told in Acts 22 when Paul addresses the Jews who have tried to stone him and started rioting at the temple. And then in Acts 26, he tells it again when he's finally on trial. And each of those stories have some different nuances to them that we'll talk about in a moment. But for now, what I'd like to do is is zone in on this idea of what happened to Paul. Was this a conversion? Did Paul convert from Judaism to Christianity? If Paul were here and we had the benefit of interviewing him, and I ask him that question, I think Paul would tell all of us, no, no, it was not a conversion. See, Christianity is not something that's non-Jewish. Those of us who are Gentiles who come to Christianity... We come to it as Gentiles. We don't have to become Jewish to become a Christian. But the Jews don't have to become Gentiles to become a Christian. Christianity is the natural end. It's, it's, it, it is the final growth. It is the completion of Judaism. This is what Paul explains in, in the letter to the Romans. Paul uses an illustration that's really kind of cool. Paul says, look, he says, uh, here's your thing. You've got, let's zoom out a little bit. He says, here's the tree. Okay? And this tree has got branches. Okay, I'm obviously not an artist. Those of you who've been in the class long enough know Catherine got all of the art genes in our family. I got none. Okay, that sort of looks like a tree, doesn't it? Needs some leaves. Just leave it alone, Brent said. <laughs> Only so much you can do, Mark. Okay, okay, those are leaves. Okay? Now, here. 
I will clearly be picked last on your Pictionary team. You want Becky. She can do this stuff. So, all right. So here's what Paul says. Paul says, if this is Christianity, this is faith. This is the Christian tree. The Christian tree has roots of Judaism. That's that's the trunk. Those are the roots. That's the foundation. It's the prophets. It's the law. It's the writings. So Jews who believe that Jesus is Messiah, they've just grown through the tree to the end. He says, you Gentiles, y'all have been grafted into the Jewish tree. So the Gentiles, we're just like this branch that got added in. But we still connect through the history of the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and more. The Old Testament story is our story. The Old Testament, Paul calls scriptures and says that they're sent from God. They're God-breathed to train us, to teach us. To the Galatians, he said that the law was sent to you as a Greek tutor, preschool teacher, to teach you your manners and to get you ready to accept Jesus as Messiah. So Paul's not going to say he's converted. Paul's going to say, He found where Judaism leads, and he's a completed Jew. He's no longer a Jew looking for the Messiah. He knows Jesus is the Messiah. So we can use the word conversion in a sense because Paul clearly gave his heart and his life to Jesus Christ. He was baptized into Christ. He accepted Jesus as his Messiah. But it wasn't a flip from a different faith. It was the fulfillment of the faith he already had. You with me? Okay. Now, here's the question. Paul, if you, if some of you may have some doubts. And if you have doubts, this is what I would urge you to see. And this, this, um, Paul, multiple times, Paul suffers lashes in the synagogue. That means that synagogue rulers decided that Paul had done something. Here it is, and he writes about it to the Corinthians. Here's what he says. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews. Paul's not going to get Jewish suffering and punishment unless he's a Jew. I mean, if Paul left Judaism behind, the synagogue could say, all right, time for you to pay your suffering. You know, we're going to subject you to 40 minus one lashes. Paul would just say, hey, I've abdicated my Judaism. I'm not a Jew anymore. Don't touch me. I'm a Roman citizen. But Paul was Jewish as he was a Christian. 
And so Paul receives five different times, 40 lashes less one. Do you know what was involved in that? Let's go to the Jewish Mishnah, which again, the Mishnah is, is basically written down probably a hundred years. It started being written down about 70 years after Paul and, and, and this stuff that ex- happened here, but over the next process, but it was already in place. It was just writing down some things that the Jews were worried that people would forget now that Jerusalem had been totally destroyed in the Bar Kokhba rebellion in the 120s, 130s. So it's divided up into seven different sections of, of divisions, the Mishnah. You have a division on seeds. It tells you all about tithing and everything else. Feasts. You have a whole division on women, um, a division on damages, and that's where we're going right now. Damages includes uh, getting lashes. So we want to go to damages to the section on getting lashes, a.k.a. stripes. That's the Makoth session. So we go to Makoth, we go to chapter 3, and here's what it says about lashes. First of all, there's a great debate over how many people should get. It's 40 save one. In other words, 40 less one, which is what Paul received. 40 lashes less one. Okay? So you see we're in the same place. Now there was a lesser, one group of rabbis that followed Rabbi Judah said that you should get 40, not 40 less than one. And, and the, extra one, that 40th one goes between the shoulders because they'd put one third on your front. Well, let's just read it. How do they scourge him? How's it done? They bind. So this happens to Paul five times because he won't say he's no longer a Jew. They bind his two hands to a pillar on either side. And the minister of the synagogue lays hold on his garments. If they're torn, they're torn. If they're utterly rent, they're utterly rent. Doesn't matter. You don't delicately take them off. You grab his garment and you pull it off so that you can get to the bare skin. With no regard to whether you tear them, ruin them, or anything like that. And then a stone is set down behind him on which the minister of the synagogue stands with a strap of calf hide in his hand that's been doubled and redoubled. And two other straps are fastened to it. You get in this picture? It gives the size. The handpiece of the strap has got to be a hand breadth long and a hand breadth wide. Its end must reach to his navel. One-third of the whippings are to the front. Two-thirds are behind. You're not allowed to strike him when he's standing or when he's sitting, but he has to be bent over. So you tie him so he's bent over. Um, If he dies, by the way, from doing this, then the scourger is not culpable. It goes on. It's it's actually, you know, if he fouls himself with excrement or urine, at that point they're supposed to stop. 
Paul says, I endured that five times because he was a Jew. And he was willing to do that so that he could continue to reach Jews. So if you look at the lashes in the synagogue from Makot 3, 12 through 15 is the passage. It brings me back to this question. Is Paul legitimate or is Paul a lunatic? I've represented people before that I figured out were either crazy or were liars. And that was my original introduction to this class that I'd written out that I didn't have time to get to. But you can read about it if you want. Uh, Brent sent the lesson out. Uh, I'm telling you, you can tell the difference. If you look at the story in all three accounts of the story, it's apparent that Paul, not converted, not converted, that Paul is someone who is intensely changing his life and his world to be who he is. So here's my analysis of all of this. First of all, I got to ask this question. Maybe Paul's just tricking us. Maybe Paul is not really seeing those things on the road to Damascus that we thought he saw. Maybe this whole thing was, I mean, after all, how many other people from 57 AD are we talking about today? Maybe Paul was just into this for the fame and fortune. Maybe Paul did this thinking, hey, I could become a real stud in this new movement. I just need to come up with a really good sounding conversion story. I need to come up with something really good where it looks like God picked me out special. Well, I look at the passages of Scripture. I look at Acts 9.26. The early church thought Paul was tricking them. But he persuaded them. So I'm thinking, well, maybe... Maybe he persuaded them, but that doesn't mean he's persuading me. Then I look at a passage like Philippians 3, 4 through 6. In Philippians 3, 4 through 6, Paul's writing a church in Philippi, and he says, listen, there are a lot of people who have reasons to be confident in who they are as a person. He said, but I have a lot more. You're not going to find anybody who's got reasons to brag about their lives like I do in terms of being somebody special. And here's who Paul was. This is, this is, you've heard the expression, put your money where your mouth is. All right, here's where the rubber meets the road. Here's Paul. Paul, and we get Paul, let's do him before Jesus. And let's do him after Jesus. Okay. Before Jesus, we know he has stellar education. From the best. 
Before Jesus, we know he has access to the high priest. Before Jesus, we know he's on the Sanhedrin, the ruling body. Before Jesus, we know he's one of the top Pharisees, the most prominent party. Before Jesus, we know he's got his Roman citizenship. Before Jesus, we know he's got his Tarsian citizenship. Before Jesus, we know he's got a lot of wealth. Before Jesus, we know he's got a lot of family contacts. This is just a smattering. We know that he's got Hebrew lineage that he can actually trace back all the way to Abraham. He can get to the, he knows he's of the tribe of Benjamin. He's got it all. He's got language skills that are just incredible that allow him to move in all of these different circles. Paul has got all of this before Jesus. What does he do? After Jesus, he trades in everything that he's not able to use for Jesus. He's able to use his language skills and he uses them for Jesus. He's able to use his stellar education for Jesus. His access to the high priest, gone. Sanhedrin, gone. Top Pharisee, gone. Roman citizen pulls it out and uses it only when he has to. Same with Tarsian citizenship. His wealth, gone. His family contacts, certainly damaged, if not gone. His Hebrew lineage, he's got it, but it's not of any real use to him anymore. It's not a bragging point. What Paul says in the Philippians passage is, everything I had, everything I had, I counted all of this as garbage. That smells. Little flies buzzing around. I counted all of it. That's a garbage can. I counted all of it as garbage in view of the surpassing value. Because what he really got here is a relationship with Jesus, God, where he is now righteous with God because of Jesus and the works of Jesus. A righteous relationship being found in God through Jesus Christ. Jesus Messiah. He says, all of that's garbage compared to that. You go and you look at another thing. Go back to that Corinthians passage. Look what Paul was willing to... Paul didn't know he'd be famous in 2,000 years. Paul didn't know. And what good's it doing him now? And Paul wasn't... He'd be a lunatic if he thought he was trading it for that. Look what he says. It wasn't just five times at the hands of the Jews he gets those beatings. That alone, if you're just trying to trick people, that's not a good trade. Hey, I'll trade all of my money for this. Three times he's beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times he's shipwrecked. 
He spent a day and a night adrift at sea. This is all before the shipwreck that's to come. On frequent journeys, he's in danger from rivers. Well, I in danger from rivers. Well, back then, they didn't have the bridge system we've got now, the flood control systems we've got now. Rivers were dangerous when you tried to cross them. Danger from robbers. Danger from his own people. Danger from the Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false Christians. In toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and exposure, not to mention the pressure for all, the daily pressure for all of his worries about all of these churches that he's responsible for. And he talks about how at Damascus, they had the king was guarding the city to seize him. And he had to be let down through a window in the wall in a basket. And Paul is, for Paul to make this shift, for Paul to go from this to this, he's got to either be legitimate or he's got to be a nut job. I mean, what, what else is there? Paul is either tricking us. You know, those things I just listed are in the second Corinthians. There's no way he's tricking us. This is a man who put his money where his mouth is. He really did. I mean, he's not talking the talk at a failure to walk the walk. Something happened to the most powerful guy who was so determined that Jesus was false. That he was willing in spite of... Paul's not a mean guy. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, his chapter on love, and try to tell me he's a mean guy. He's not a mean guy. He's got a heart. He cares. He loves. And you take a guy like that who is as trained and knowledgeable as he is, who knows the scriptures so well. And you take that man and that man who is dead bent and determined to see anybody who believes Jesus is Messiah locked up, persecuted, and if they won't recant, killed because of his strong desire to serve God. And you flip him? On a dime, something happened. Paul's not tricking us. I mean, the analysis breaks down further. Was Paul mistaken? Oh, come on. How can he be mistaken over this? He gave his life for it. He spent decades doing this. He gave up everything for it. There wasn't a doubt in his mind. And if you look at the passages, time not only doesn't dilute it, but Paul becomes himself someone who's doing miracles no one else could explain otherwise. Paul's miracles, he helps the lame see. He gives sight to the blind. Eutychus gets raised from the dead. Through Paul. Paul's never wavering. Paul's never, gee, I wonder if that was a mistake. Maybe it was a flying saucer. No, Paul is confident. 
at the end of his life, he's writing Timothy. And he says, I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded he's able to keep what I've committed to him against that day. Was Paul mistaken? Not likely. Sure doesn't have any indications of it. So is Paul legitimate or a lunatic? Well, now some people say, but wait. There are three separate accounts. And when you read those accounts, if you read them carefully, you'll find differences. Yes. What about the differences in those accounts? And some nimrods in the scholarly world have decided this must be three different traditions that hundreds of years later someone compiled together to create the book of Acts. And oh, heavens to Betsy, no. You can look at Acts 9, you can look at Acts 22, and you can look at Acts 26, and the first thing you'll discover is that they're given in different uh, forums for different reasons. Acts 9 is the story that Luke's telling. Here's what happened. Acts 22, Paul's standing up in front of an audience of Jews that want to stone him. And he's trying to speak to them. So he's going to tell the story, emphasizing the details that will be most meaningful to that audience. I I do the same thing. Anybody who speaks tailors what they're saying to the audience. There's a lot of stuff I could have told you about that I didn't. If I had had an audience of straight Jewish rabbis in here, I would have gone into more depth in Makot. I would have looked at it and said, let's look at the different reasons you can stone someone. And let's decide which of these reasons might have been used as, I mean, uh, uh, lash someone. Let's decide which one was the reason that Paul got stripes. But I didn't do that with you. You don't. You don't, in in the priority of how much time I've got, you don't care as much. You might find it interesting, but not as much. So I tailor this message to you. But that doesn't mean that those other things are untrue. And that doesn't mean if I go speak to Jewish rabbis who are study students of the Mishnah, then I'm not going to sit down with them and say, hey, let's explore some of this. This is interesting. I could do that. And it doesn't mean that I was being false with you. It doesn't mean I'm being false with them. It doesn't mean that someone later put that together. No, that's just the way it is. And the third time he's telling the story, Paul's telling it with a whole different audience. And it's in response to the indictment against Paul. And so he's telling it for that audience. I'll tell you this, if the story was made up and concocted by someone afterwards, Do you know the biggest way to tell that a story's made up? They tell it the exact same way every time. If I'm I'm trying cases as a lawyer, anybody who uses the exact same words and tells the story the exact same way every time, especially if it's multiple people, like here we've got Luke telling it one place, Paul in another, you get multiple people saying the exact same thing. It's rehearsed. It's not authentic. Authentic stories don't come out that way because times and reflection and and audience make a difference in the way you tell the truth. That doesn't mean that sometimes it's not true. 
Some of you follow the media. And some of you follow the media about me. I got some emails from some of y'all. Because recently there was a story put out in the legal rags that an appeal has been made against one of my cases alleging that I did not tell the truth to a jury. Well, that's absolutely absurd. I absolutely tell the truth to the jury. And the facts unfolded show it exactly. Facts happen. They unfold. You tell the story. And then over time, the facts may may get added to. There may be more additional information. Something else may have happened to Paul. You, those things happen in real life. That's a sign that you're telling the truth. So, I mean, what about the differences? To me, that shows this is authentic. So where does this leave me? Is Paul legitimate? Could something like that on the road to Damascus have really occurred? Could the risen Jesus have really come to Paul and said, listen to me. You're my man. I'm sending to do this. Stop what you're doing. You're on the wrong road. You're on your way. I am the way. You need to follow me. I think Paul's legit. I mean, I, that's, that's the most logical answer to me. I mean, I, I, nothing else is making sense to me. Oh, if he's an absolute utter nutter, he never could have written so many clear, logical, sane, precise touching, elegant letters. He would not have had so many churches follow him, embrace him, grow under him. Nutters aren't generally that successful. I don't see him as a lunatic. I see him as legitimate. Here are your points for home. This is the Philippians passage I referred to before. Whatever gain I had, all of those things I put in Paul's pre-column. I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ, Messiah. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth or value of knowing Jesus, Messiah, my Lord. For his sake, I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish so that I might gain Christ, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from how well I do things, how well I follow the law, but a righteousness that comes through my trust, my faith, my belief in Christ. Wow. I got to recheck my priorities. Paul will take everything and count it as rubbish in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus as Lord. So I look at all these things that happened to him and I think, man, 
Who wants to? And I don't want to endure one lash. I don't even want them ripping my clothes. I don't even want them tying my hands between the pillars. I mean, they tie my hands between the pillars and rip my clothes. I'm going to start blubbering right then. If I know the rules well enough to know that all I have to do is like defile myself and they quit, I'm gone. First lash, man. I'm out. (laughs) Say, hold on, check it. I think I'm gone. But Paul's willing to suffer all of that knowing that in the end, God uses even that to verify, not just to the Corinthians, but to us today, how convicted he was and how confident he was in who Jesus was and God, what God was about. So Paul's able to write to the Romans and tell them, everything works for good for those who love God. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Rick Meadow is in here. Rick's one of my dear, dear friends. He's a lawyer from originally New York, now living down here. And Rick and I, one of our favorite sayings that I, I used to use with Rick, he opened in my New York office 13 years ago. And he'd call me up and he'd say, or I'd be up there and he'd say, okay, we got a problem. And I'd just say to him, it's going to work out. He'd say, well, are, are you sure? i say, trust me. Rick, this is the reason why. I know that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Now, it may not be the way I'd want it to work out. Roger Waters has a new song, If I Were God. It's a horrible song. It's a cool sound, but the lyrics. I just want to say, Roger. And anyway, Pink Floyd doesn't come to me typically for their lyrics, but uh, uh, I heard him sing the song the other day. I'm just saying, ah! If I were God, though, I would do things quite differently, but I'm not God, and I am confident that he is and that he's doing good things. Listen, Paul has room to say this, and I'd be a fool not to listen. For Paul, who endured all of those things to say all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose, that's someone who can preach. He's got the right. He earned it. The stripes are his. And I'd be a fool not to listen and not to trust him with what I've got going on. And then I go back to that same passage in Philippians 3. I count everything as loss. I can't get that out of my brain. I had to use it twice in points for home. And the reason why is because I'm not where Paul is yet on that. And I just pray, God, have mercy on me. Because I want to be. I need to to be more like Jesus. And Paul was so much closer to that than I am. Jesus would give up everything for you, for Paul, for me. And for some reason, I just have trouble sometimes focusing on that the way I should. So that's my goal this week. Those are my points that I'm taking home from the lesson. I hope you've got some. Next week, we've got a special treat for you. David Capes, who's written a book, Paul rediscovered is going to come next week and I'm going to have him talk about three to five of his favorite things about Paul that he came across when he wrote that book that had not occurred to him in decades of teaching in seminaries and colleges about Paul. 
So I, I, you're in for a real treat. Bring visitors. Meanwhile, if you'll stand up, those of you who can, I want to bless you, and uh, then we'll we'll depart. And Lord, I pronounce the blessing in the name of Jesus. The blessing is yours, Father, upon my brothers and sisters. And I ask you to, to, to touch their hearts, to reshift our priorities, to give us perspective, to communicate to us, to reach into our hearts, to let us hear your voice. Jesus as Lord. Amen. Mm-hmm.